This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson. And you may have noticed that in the news, there has been a little bit of volatility in the markets. The S&P 500 has had, I think, as of recording right now, five weeks of downturns, which is the most it's had since 2011. Uh, people who are into cryptocurrencies have noticed that those cryptocurrencies have, have fallen to, uh, I'm not going to say new lows because that's not really true because they've been even lower within the calendar year, or, or at least within the 12-month period if you look back, um, but they've lost you know, more than 50% of their value if you're looking at things like Bitcoin. Um, and so within all of those things and looking at interest rates, which are actually still historically low, even though they have been going up to talk about that and many more things, I am joined today by Deborah Plum. Deborah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Very uplifting I, topic. Yeah, right. <laughs> Since I teed that up as such a optimistic, uh, amazing uh, background, now we can jump in and talk about it. But uh, I should I should say welcome back because it's not like your first rodeo here on the podcast. No, no hopefully many more. <laughs> The um, the interesting thing to me, I mean, every time, well, first, sorry, just take two steps back. First of all, this this kind of volatility in the market, although maybe not quite to this degree, is becoming a very familiar tune. And it feels like every four to six months, we have a podcast where we talk about significant volatility in the market. And, you know, I don't know if that's just that's the way the market is going to behave or we're just in a weird little period. It's funny. I was thinking the same thing. I feel like there's been a few times where I've heard the market and the volatility. We've definitely, this is not our first, just like it's not my first rodeo on the podcast. This is not our first rodeo in discussing sort of how to, especially in the context of estate planning, take advantage or make the most out of a situation that is not ideal, or at least you wouldn't think of as ideal because the current value of assets or the sort of current interest rate maybe is seen as is not advantageous. But I do wonder if some of this is just how it's going to behave for the next little while. Mm-hmm. This volatility is going to be the new norm. Um, but whether it's the new norm or an odd pocket that is seeming to last a little bit, I think the questions and the issues that we'll discuss still remain consistent or relevant in either case. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah I think that's spot on. And the and it's really hard to know. And I'm guessing that you and I don't have a crystal ball. Actually, if you do have a crystal ball, let me just like nod your head so that only I can see it and the listeners can't see it. And then we'll talk offline. But if either you or I have a crystal ball, like where is the bottom of the market and where is the top of the market, we would share it. But we don't. I might share for a price. (laughs) Yes. Not cheap. There, there's a couple commas in there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, you sort of, uh, you mentioned it, so we should dig into it. So it is true that when you have um, markets that go down combined with relatively low interest rates, although actually the interest rate is not always the key component to this type of planning, um, there are certain planning techniques when you're talking about wealth transfers that shine. So I thought maybe we'd talk about some of those. So one of them, we've talked about these in the past on the podcast, are grantor-retained annuity trusts or GRATs, which seem to have about a once-every-three-to-five-year heyday in some um, newspaper clipping where some journalist figures out that these things exist and they, they sort of are surprised that they exist, even though everybody uses them 
routinely. So you want to just sort of maybe explain the GRAT transaction in general and why this kind of environment might be good for them. Sure. And it's funny that you mentioned that every couple of years they kind of um, pop up because when we talked about this being what we wanted to talk about on the podcast, you know, I always kind of take a look, see any articles, think about what's current. And, you know, it went from there were there was an influx of information about GRATs in 2009. You know, every practitioner uh-huh. was talking about it and it was really hot topic. And then. Okay, sometimes they pop up. And then now, of course, there's lots of blogs, lots of articles where grats are the, the hot topic. So it is kind of funny that you mentioned exactly that, that I, that they, yeah, every couple of years. But effectively, the grat, um, is an irrevocable trust and it'll have a specified term. And, and just to back up, it's, um, this is, I would say the reason it comes up in this market is it's really, the most effective if you're going to gift away an asset that you know will have some type of appreciation. So if there is an interest in stock or in a company that you feel is much lower than you would like it to be or that it was even historically in terms of how depending on how long you've held it um, and you expect that it will increase in value in the future, that's that's the best asset for purposes of this transaction. And you would then gift those assets into this grat and this, this irrevocable trust. And also, I think this is what we discussed a little bit offline, the theme of all of this um, in terms of planning is you have to be willing to gift whatever asset is in question. Um, so, you know, when we talk about stocks and things that maybe is less of a, an odd issue or a question, but if you start talking about real estate or interest in businesses that are a little bit more personal in nature, that might be something to, to just consider. So I always like to say at the beginning. But effectively, um, you get the, the asset is gifted away and annuity payments are received in return throughout the term of the trust. And then just a big picture. And then at the end, the beneficiaries will receive any of the remaining property. Um, and that increased valuation. So the appreciation on that property that's gifted to your beneficiaries passes on to them tax free. That's, that's really the end goal. Um, the transfer in the initial from the outset would be treated as a taxable gift because you're gifting it away into a trust to the beneficiaries effectively. But there is a way to also zero that out because the value of the gift tax uh, is determined based on the IRS rate known as the 7520 rate, um, which also changes monthly. Um, just it's similar to it's a little bit similar to an interest rate. So the tax savings that we're talking about in terms of making sure that the gift tax is valued at zero is achieved because the annuity payments are calculated in a manner to result in a gift tax value of zero, basically so that the interest earned will be higher than the 7520 rate. Um, I know that was a lot of technical stuff. So if you want to jump in and <laughs> translate. Yeah, no, that was that was right. And the, the idea being that the value in the eyes of the IRS of the annuity payments that are going to be paid back to you is going to be equivalent to the value of the thing you put into the trust. Right. And because the thing that you're actually giving away is everything you're not getting back. So whatever's left in the trust, um, if what you put in and what you're getting back are equivalent, then you know, one minus one is zero, and therefore the gift is essentially worth zero. Although there's some, you know, I don't want to bore anybody with a debate about whether or not the number can be zero or needs to be something slightly more than zero. <laughs> there's a whole debate, but basically the idea is you're going to get it down to as close to zero as you can. You can do that mathematically, and all of this is 100% blessed by the IRS. There are regulations that tell you how to make those calculations. But the, there's a percentage that you use that you mentioned, the 7520 rate, that it's based off of interest rates, federal interest rates that the IRS puts out every month. Um, and that percentage then is used 
as what's called the discount rate for actuarial purposes to figure out what is the the value today of a dollar that you're going to receive in the future. So say a dollar that you're going to receive in a year in the first annuity payment, and then you're going to receive maybe in two years in the next annuity payment. And so you discount down the value of that dollar, and then you do it over a number of years for each annuity payment that gets paid. And uh, essentially, that's how you figure out what is the value of the annuity payments today for purposes of this one minus one calculation. And so typically, the idea is when the 7520 rate is low, which right now it's 3%, which historically is very low. The the average, I think, historical 7520 rate is somewhere between 5 and 6%. I, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. I haven't looked at it recently enough to know it off the top of my head, but um, it's somewhere between 5 and 6%. So the, the, the 75 20 rate is still historically low. But obviously, the lower that number is, the less of this discounting that you do. And therefore, in the eyes of the IRS, the more valuable a dollar in the future is to you today. And so you can receive a smaller annuity payment off of the GRAT. And in the eyes of the IRS, that smaller annuity payment will look more like it's worth its $1 today, not worth, say, like 90 cents or 75 cents. And so therefore, you have to pay more in the annuity payments because of the discount down to present value in order to zero out these GRATs. Okay, so anyways, all of that is to say, if, if it's simple for anybody to keep in their mind, the lower the 7520 rate there is, the, the quote unquote easier it is to do the GRAT and succeed. And success means that the assets inside the GRAT will appreciate in value faster than the 7520 rate. Okay, so that gets back to your initial setup here, right? So how do you make the GRAT work? Well, of course, with a low 7520 rate, that helps because you're going to you're going to beat the 7520 rate easier when it's a low percentage on averages, right? But also low value assets are really like that's the kicker. If you have an asset, like you were saying, that you believe is going to appreciate in value, if you stick it in the GRAT and then it appreciates and all like the real big kicker appreciation happens inside the GRAT, then presumably that's going to beat the 7520 rate. And 3% is not a tremendous amount of growth. Uh, so to beat 3% even in a crazy market like today is not a tremendous amount of growth. Um, you know, you're going to there's going to be something left over in the grat at the end of its term. And then that leftover bit passes on to family members, in essence, gift tax free. The other the other angle on it is you, the person who's receiving the annuity payment, who presumably um, have sufficient wealth to worry about. Now, you know what the value of that asset is in your hands because the value is frozen at the value of the annuity payments that are being made to you. So instead of holding on to a high volatility asset, like say stock in a public company that's been yo-yoing over the past couple of years, you now hold in your hands an asset that is essentially the annuity payments and that is locked in stone. That's not going to change. So you've, you're just sort of swapping like for like, or not like for like, but you're swapping a high volatility asset, which is now inside the GRAT for a low volatility asset, which is the annuity payments coming off the GRAT. So now you have some certainty of what the value of your estate is going to look like in the future, because if you're in that uh, estate tax risk arena, the worst possible thing is to die when everything is high because uh, you just pay more tax. I was going to say, um, you know, for all the emphasis, and it's always, we always emphasize this zeroed out GRAT concept related uh -huh. to the 7520 rate. But I think that, you know, as long as, as we said, the asset is low enough in value right now and there is an expected appreciation, there is a benefit to the transaction in and of itself. There's, as you just said, the knowledge and freezing of the valuation of what's in you as the grantor gifter's hands. And then there's the knowledge that even if there is some gift tax associated with the transaction, 
you do have this appreciation or subsequent appreciation of the assets that do that pass outside of your estate. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, again, I, I understand why we always talk about zeroed out grats, but I think in a market like this, there's value to the grats, even if there is some risk in any way of not completely zeroing it out, at least yeah. to my mind. Well, and, and with the grat, it's it's the great um, gambler's choice, but the way that it, they function, it's sort of like, Hedge you win, tells you win, because if the value of the assets in the the grat actually tank, so there's there's no appreciation, you do not beat the 7520 rate. What what ends up happening at the end of the grat term is everything gets paid straight back to you. And effectively what that means is that had you held on to that asset minus lawyers and accounting fees, um, you would have been in an identical situation. Because that asset would have tanked in your hands, just like it tanked inside the grat, and you just got back everything that you put in. So you're in no different position right. if you if you use the grat and you fail. So it's a it's like I say, it's like the ultimate gambler's choice of uh, of a tool. Uh, but it, they function pretty well when you're in a volatile downside of a market. There's a there's another technique similar to a grat in some ways, um, and that is to basically just sell an asset to a trust and just to sort of set up the premise. The idea is if if a trust is what's called a grantor trust, meaning that you, the person selling the asset, are treated as if for income tax purposes, you own everything in the trust. The IRS, through a ruling, uh, Revenue Rule 8513, has said that uh, the transaction with the trust is a non-taxable event. So there's no capital gains on the sale. Okay, so that's the premise here. So can you maybe sort of describe that transaction and how that might be a little bit different from a grant? Sure. So as as you said, this would be a grantor trust where you retain some control um, and then that that would be that you, the grantor, and not the trust entity pays income taxes on the trust income. Um, so, But even though you retain that control over the trust, the assets are generally not included in your taxable estate. So again, we're in a situation where the goal is that the assets in question will be moving outside of your estate. Um, that is the theme of, of today in volatile markets. So you would sell assets to the trust in return for an installment note with interest calculated based on the current AFR. There's no gift tax because it's a sale, except for any initial gift that sort of seeds the trust, as they say. But there is there's effectively because you are selling the assets to the trust in exchange for the note. There's no gift tax. But because you, as you said, the grantor and the trust entity are considered the same taxpayer for income tax purposes, then there's no gain on that sale either. So then the idea is that you've now sold the asset, it's outside of your estate, it's in the trust, and then the payback, so the note, um, the, the idea is that the value that's leaving your estate via the sale will exceed the value returned to your estate via the note. So you reduce your estate by paying the, then the income taxes on the income received from the note. So that's the, uh, the was there anything you thought I missed there? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's right. So it's like with the GRAT, where you're receiving back the annuity payment in the sale to the, the intentionally defective grantor trust, as they're called, IGITs. Correct. Um, in that transaction, like with the GRAT, where you're taking a volatile asset and you're swapping it for a non-volatile asset being the annuity payment, it's similar with the sale because you're swapping a volatile asset for a promissory note. And the value of the promissory note is basically the face value of the promissory note plus interest. Um, the the arbitrage that some people see in that transaction is that the payments on the note do not have to be paid annually like they do with a GRAT in, in that with the GRAT, the annuity payment basically needs to be uh, paid in large chunks um, to oversimplify it. 
Um, you can you can graduate the payments of the annuities so that the annuity payments increase over time on the GRAP, but not you don't have a lot of flexibility to do that with the GRAP. But with a sale to a intentionally defective grant or trust, the note, for example, could pay interest only for a time which could be quite low, with a balloon payment where everything is now, the balance is due, but at a later date, and you might be able to set that later date, like something far further in the future, not too far in the future, but further in the future, ultimately you do want to get these things paid off. But for example, the IRS says that the interest rate on the note needs to be at least the, what's called the applicable federal rate. And it's different from the 7520 rate. 7520 rate in May 2022 is 3%, like we were saying. Well, the applicable federal rate in May 2022 is as low as 1.85%. And that's on a, quote, short-term note. So it'd be like less than three years. But you could um, you could set up a short-term note and have that low of an interest payment. And so now the growth of the asset inside the trust has to beat, in essence, this lower applicable federal rate rather than the 7520 rate in order for the trust trust to now hold assets at the end of paying off the note. And those assets now transfer without any sort of gift tax like you pointed out. So if I put, you know, say sell a million dollars of McDonald's stock to the trust and I get back a note for a million plus 1.85% for some term that's slightly less than three years, at the end of that term, the trust pays me back the interest, the 1.85% that's remaining plus the million dollars. And if McDonald's stock has increased in value more than 1.85% over that time, all that increased value is stuck inside the trust. I don't get it back, but now the trust is enriched and I didn't have to make any additional gift into the trust to do that. And in the meantime, I retained an asset that is now not volatile. So there's no risk of me right. dying in a year when McDonald's is through the roof and just increasing my estate tax bill. I was going to say that added sort of certainty of what it is in your hands is similar to the GRAT. So you have the, the mm-hmm. volatile little asset pushed out into outside of your estate um, with hopeful appreciation so that it passes, but you have a certainty of what it is that you held or what you gift and what you gifted away in that value. And then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of similar to family loans, which I'm sure we were also going to talk about, but you could also, could you not forgive amounts of the loans, correct, in, in terms of in equal to a gift tax annual sure. exclusion? So yeah, sure. in addition to having those payments back in a way that is not this taxable transaction and, and you've, you've gifted out an asset, you can also choose to forgive parts alone, depending on the size of it, every year in a manner that if that's going to be how you use your annual gift tax exclusion. You could. And the only hitch to that is the trust needs to be set up in a way to allow annual exclusion gifts. But assuming the trust is set up in a way to allow annual exclusion gifts, then you can forgive this year up to $16,000 per person uh, for annual exclusion gifts. So you could forgive, say, interest payments on the note up to $16,000 per, say, beneficiary of the trust. And then that would, you know, whatever that value is, would retain in the trust. They wouldn't pay it back to you. So you absolutely could do that. Or you could just forgive the note and make a larger gift. Um, that's also possible. So you've gone from not having made a gift at all, other than what you were saying, like the seeding of the trust, to now you're just going to forgive the the loan in order to make a larger gift because, say, you maybe you want to use up some of your gift tax exemption. So that's it gives you a lot of flexibility. You can't do those things with a grant. So this this transaction gives you a lot of flexibility that a grant doesn't give you. Well, let's talk about the loan because you could have somebody who's, you know, say it's a really volatile uh, market, but they're sitting on cash and cash doesn't have the same level of volatility unless you're playing the currency exchanges. So, you know, that person could make a loan and that might look like a sale to an intentionally defective trust 
but instead of it being a sale of assets, it's just you're just lending money. And now the trust can take that cash and invest the cash into the market. If the feeling is that the market is at a low point, now the trust is investing at a low point in the market, and then presumably the appreciation in the market is going to happen inside the trust using your money, and it's going to pay you back at the lower value because it's going to pay you back the note based on the actual lent amount, not on the appreciation of the investments in the trust. I guess, of course, the, the then the big thing to always remember with any kind of intrafamily loan is making sure that they do look like a bona fide loan. You know, so we talk about forgiving them and and sort of that flexibility. It's it's important that the terms of the loan are drafted such that it has it, it smells, looks, feels like a loan. Um, so that's always my my favorite part to, yes. to remind people of because that's where things can get a little tripped up. And I think, you know, with a with a grat that has this sort of blessing from the IRS, there's these parameters, you know, that that make sure that you sort of you can't really. I mean, I'm sure you can mess anything up if you wanted and tried hard enough. But there's there's a parameter of what constitutes a grat done correctly. I think with you know any kind of defect intentionally defective grantor trust and these transactions sales and loans between family members, you know, there's an element of you have to make sure that you you follow those 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 rules and make sure that there is a term sort of set for payments and that there's an interest rate and the interest rate isn't unreasonably low so that it looks like effectively it's not an actual transaction. It has to look like something that two unrelated parties would enter into and would be reasonable taking the actual asset in question also into consideration, which is also yeah. where valuation comes in because we are in a volatile market, and of course, there is an element of it's clear that everything is kind of sinking and tanking, but you can't also abuse that scenario and play with the valuation too much such that it looks like you were overly aggressive in how you um, valued the, the property. So I think that was just something that loans always make me yeah. think of and like to remind people about. No, it's really true because um, there's there's a lot of flexibility like we've been describing, but it doesn't mean that you can just ignore the formalities of the transaction. And so if you're going to do a loan, uh, maybe the loan should be secured and that will substantiate that there's some meat on that on that loan. So, for example, maybe the loan is cash into the trust, the trust forms an LLC and the trust gives the lender a security interest in the membership interest of the LLC. So if you don't pay it back, they're going to take the LLC. Uh, so there's something there. There's some meat there. In addition, sort of you have to have the not just on paper, but you need to have the practice uh, facts that show that it's a legitimate transaction. So, for example, when interest payments are due, maybe they get paid. They don't always get forgiven um, so that it. It shows that it, it is a real loan and there is intent to actually pay the loan. And what gets people in trouble sometimes in some cases is that there are no facts indicating that there's any intent to ever pay it back or any intent to ever enforce the note. So you want to build facts that support that those things are actually, in fact, going to happen here. So one other um I mean, you mentioned the valuation. There was a, a recent uh, chief counsel advice memorandum about a grat where the the asset that went into the grat was substantially undervalued and pretty clearly I think most people would agree like not valued correctly and the IRS took the position that because of the misvaluation and probably because of how badly the value was mis misdone um it didn't even qualify as a grat at all uh which is a pretty aggressive position I've never seen that I'd never seen that from the IRS I don't think anybody else had ever seen that from the IRS um 
but wow. to your yeah, but to your point, um, you need to you need to respect the valuation rules and you need to get like real values on real assets. Cash is cash, so that's easier. Marketable securities, that's easier. But if you have something that's not easy to value, you need to get real valuation. So let me throw one at you um, that sometimes seems like something that's easy to value, but is in fact not as easy to value, and that is cryptocurrencies and NFTs. I know there are marketplaces for these things, but in the eyes of the IRS, for many circumstances, like for example, charitable deduction purposes, you have to get a qualified appraisal in order to substantiate valuations. It's probably good practice, although there's no specific IRS guidance on this point, that if you were going to do, say, a sale of of crypto assets or cryptographic assets into an intentionally defective trust that you would get a qualified appraisal for that sale to set the valuation because you would have to do that in the charitable context. And there's, I don't think it's a huge leap to assume that the IRS would expect that in a private transaction context too. Well, I think it's also because the crypto market, you know, I know we talk about it sort of as if it's fungible, it's an asset that's sort of treated like cash or securities, but the reality is again, you know, it's still actually their property transactions right? So if you think about it as akin to real estate, real estate, it's almost always good practice to get a qualified appraisal. And because the real estate market, similar to the crypto market, is, a, is I think, inherently less, um, I would say, I don't want to say that it's subject to more emotions or what's going on, like on a personal level, but I, but I do think it's a little bit less, it's more akin to real estate than it is to cash or to marketable securities that have a clear yeah. cut tried and true market. So, you know, yeah. even without the complications, I mean, of, of what, it, what they are, <laughs> just the concept of what they are treated as. And if they're treated as property, I would think that having a qualified appraisal makes a lot of sense in terms of that parallel. Sure. And, and I think in the, like in the context of NFTs there, it's not necessarily artwork. And I get like, I don't need to be inundated with people telling me about their NFT projects and everything that's behind the the digital art that's attached to the NFT, I get it. But it's not too dissimilar to like artwork that you might be able to get rid of quickly. You know, you could auction it off or you could sell it on, on different online sites like pretty quickly. So it, it's actually quite liquid in that sense. But to do these sorts of tax-driven transactions, you would have to get a qualified appraisal of the artwork and you couldn't rely on those those online sites to give you that appraisal in order to substantiate the valuation in the eyes of the IRS. So we're just speaking purely from our best guess about what the IRS would think about the valuations of these assets. Belt and suspenders, I think, is a good thing That's to think right. of when it comes to, <laughs> to anything crypto or NFTs. That's right. You know, I, I think that anything that still hasn't had some kind of clear blessing one way or the other, it's nice to – it's just – Good to think about how to make sure you have the, the right belts and suspenders to support the transaction. Well said. Yes, well said. Okay, well, I, I kind of mentioned it. So um, some people in these sorts of markets might be thinking about offloading assets to charities, uh, which is totally fine. Um, but one of the one of the techniques that's similarly driven by low valuations and low interest rates is what's called the charitable lead annuity trust. So can you explain that just a little bit and then we can talk about why we're even mentioning it? Yeah. So a charitable lead trust is another irrevocable trust. Um, the difference is that this one will have both charitable and non-charitable beneficiaries. So it's called a lead trust. Um, and without getting into the technicalities of CLATS, CLUTS, you know, annuity versus unit trust, I'll just say first and foremost, it's a lead trust because it's the charity that's entitled to the first or lead interest from the trust property. So there's, again, a term 
And then it's after that term that the remaining trust property passes to another non-charitable beneficiary or it could return it could return to the grantor in certain circumstances um but i'm for i'm typically i don't know what your practice is i mostly have seen it go on to other non-charitable beneficiaries so going on to the grantor's children or descendants or something like that so but in terms of the tax like how the tax implications of it work at the time the assets are placed into the trust you receive your if it's done right, the current gift tax deduction that's equal to the present value of the income stream that will be going to the charity. So throughout that term, there is an income stream that goes out to that charity. Um, and it also uses another sort of interest rate that's the 7520 rate, similar to the GRATS, to calculate what that income stream looks like. So again, the lower the interest rate, the higher the deduction that you're going to get. Um, and that's similar again to the GRAT. And then it's also hoped that those assets that are in the charitable lead trust will appreciate beyond that rate once again. And then that will allow that excess that appreciation to pass to the non-charitable beneficiaries at the end tax-free. Yeah, gift tax-free. And, and the idea is that you can, yes, like with the GRAT, you know, it's, I mean, I, I know what you mean. Maybe maybe 30% of the people listening know what you mean when we say tax-free. But it's so confusing because there's so many different yeah. taxes. I mean, it's like gift tax. That's one thing. And then estate tax, and that's different. Oh, and then yeah. generation skipping transfer tax, and that's something different. And then income tax, that's something different. And then maybe cap- capital gains, that's something completely different. And then maybe like the deduction rules for charitable contributions for income tax, that's one thing. And then yeah. for you know gift tax, it's another thing. Another. It's, yeah. it's a mess. But uh, in broad strokes, the idea is that the CLAT can be structured to be, quote unquote, zeroed out, like with the uh, the GRAT structure where you you put an asset into the trust, you actually get a deduction for gift tax purposes uh, for the gift or the annuity payments that are going to go, going to go, I don't know why that was difficult to say, um, going to go to the charity, just like in the GRAT, you take it in essence, a deduction on the value uh, of the property in the trust for the thing that's coming back to you. Um, and so you can mathematically calculate the annuity payments going to the charity so that they're equal to the value of what was put into the trust or almost equal to the value of what was put into the trust. So therefore, you know, if you put in a million dollars and what's being paid to the charity is worth a million dollars, one minus one is zero, therefore no gift. Um, even if the assets inside the trust appreciate faster than the 7520 rate such that at the end of its term, when all of the annuity payments have been made to the charity, there's something left in the trust. And even if that's a large amount that's left in the trust, that can pass on to typically your family members without incurring a gift tax. That's sort of the premise of these things. So again, if you're thinking about somebody who's, um, number one, charitably inclined, because that's the first thing, because you really are giving up something to charity, even if it's your own charity, but you're you're really giving it up to the charity. So number one, they're charitably inclined. And number two, they have an estate tax issue. Um, this kind of technique can be really powerful, but it really derives its power by the volatility of the asset that goes in, particularly if the asset is volatile and it's going in on the low side of the market. And then if the interest rate that's used to discount the value of the annuity, because the higher the interest rate, the more you have to pay to the to the charity as annuity payments in order to, quote, zero out the trust. And the lower the interest rate, the less you have to pay to the charity to zero out the trust. That's just the way the math works out. So again, in we're relatively low interest rate environment, you can actually reach back two years or sorry, two months to pick a whatever interest rate is acceptable to you for the last couple of months. And it turns out that in the last two months, the interest the 7520 rate was less than three percent. 
So you could reach back and use the lower interest rate to calculate the annuity payments for the CLAT. So there's a lot of advantages in the current environment where you can kind of look back, use a lower interest rate. You get to, you can put in assets that are maybe low historically on a market perspective into the trust. You can get this charitable deduction. You can structure it to get an income tax charitable deduction if you want. Um, and so there's a lot of flexibility with the, with the CLAT. But it's similar to a GRAT with one big exception, okay? And that is there are no specific rules about the size of the annuity payments that must be paid each year to the charity. At least the IRS has not specifically said that there's a specific rule. But the IRS does have specific rules about how you calculate annuity payments. And so it is mathematically possible to have, say, low annuity payments up front and then much higher annuity payments on the back end of the trust, which means you're paying out less money in the earlier years than you are in the later years, meaning you're retaining more of the assets in the trust, they're accumulating more inside the trust, more appreciation is happening inside the trust. And you can calculate, even under those circumstances, the value of each annuity payment to come up with this zeroed out number. And in addition to that, we didn't mention this with the GRAT, but with the GRAT, when if you if I set up a GRAT and I die before the GRAT is done, basically, for easy understanding here, everything that's in the GRAT at that time is going to be included in my estate for estate taxes. Okay, that's the basic rule. There's a more complicated part of that rule that we're not talking about, but just for easy understanding, that's the basic rule. With the CLAT, that's not the, not the case. So, I, you know, I set up the CLAT. It benefits my charity. At the back end of the CLAT, when it's done, everything pays out to Deborah. She'll be super happy. Uh, well, <laughs> I can you. make that CLAT. Yeah, I can make that CLAT last for a very long period of time, even even if I die early. It doesn't necessarily include everything in my estate. Um, so the risk of me dying early and then having everything clawed back into my estate isn't there like it is with the GRAT, which typically means with the CLATs, they do last for longer periods of time, you know, maybe 20, 30 years. And so now you've got 20 or 30 years of growth that's happening inside the trust. So the economics start to really make sense, particularly when you have low interest rates. So in these kinds of environments where things are going up and down and you're on the downside of that up and down, um, all of a sudden, you, again, if you're thinking about like historical rates of return and historical values on assets, if you see assets that are very low, all of a sudden it makes flipping those into a clat very compelling. I think it's also to your point, it makes it compelling if, you know, and this is where we don't have a crystal ball. It's very compelling to make a very long-term clat if we're fairly confident that you're good with getting rid of the asset, it's outside of your control, and we're fairly certain that the time it will take for the asset to appreciate again is long enough to make the economics worthwhile. You know, with the GRAT, some of the times people will do very short-term GRATs for exactly the question of, is this long-term down or is it volatile? So that's gonna, the asset will appreciate right back up again, and there's no reason for it to sit in the GRAT for a longer period of time, or if you're concerned about, as you said, if you pass away before the end of the term, you know, there's lots of people I've seen who do two-year GRATs and then re-up and just sort of recycle them through without getting into the complexities of what that involves. But um, so I think that's something that makes sort of CLATs, you know, you have to really be willing in a lot of ways to, to truly part with the asset. Um, so all the flexibility that um, comes with, for example, those sales may be the, or, or in some ways with the CLAT, because it doesn't have these strict rules that the GRAT does, can also be offset by the GRAT, which sometimes is more appealing if you want a shorter term and you're not necessarily committed mm -hmm. to this longer term plan. So I think 
Because yeah, that's, that. no, that's really, no, that's a, that's a perfect point. And I think that's, that's exactly right. That's sort of the dividing line between these techniques is with the clat, you have to literally be willing to part with the asset. Whereas with the grat and the sale to the intentionally defective trust, you're not, you're not necessarily parting with the asset, at least in, in terms of what you're going to receive back the value of the asset. So you're just swapping out that asset for something of equivalent value, which presumably is going to be paid to you in cash. And so you're actually, you're getting something back in those transactions. So if you, if somebody is like, no, I can't possibly part with my money, that's a grat or a sale to a defective trust candidate. If it's somebody who's, who is saying, I want to fund charity and I'm totally willing to just write the check today, that's somebody who's much more a candidate for a clap. Um, and I frequently do try to at least explain to people the idea of the clap. Because in my mind, the idea is that if you write a check to a charity, in effect, you're doing a clat. It's just what you're doing is you're giving the charity both the annuity payment and the back end of the trust because they can invest the money on on their own and keep everything. So with the clat, you're just splitting those two things into two pieces, giving the charity the annuity, but keeping the appreciation for your family. And the IRS lets you do it. So some people are very interested in doing what the IRS will let them do. That's good. Uh, I like the description of those two, the distinctions. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to explain that to clients like that from now on. <laughs> You're welcome. Trademark. <laughs> so you say trademark print. Yeah, you say trademark print. <laughs> <you can> <laughs> All right, Deborah. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, I thought it anyways would be an interesting exercise to just kind of maybe remind people. And these are things that we've talked about off and on on the, on the podcast, but just sort of remind people that um, when markets are doing crazy things, good or bad, um, and there's a lot of talk and furor over whatever it is that's happening and, and, and opining about whatever it is that's happening, that typically in either instance, when the either markets are up or down, um, in our little small neck of the world, it actually creates opportunities. And so you can be, if you're alive to those opportunities, sometimes you can take advantage of them. And these are just a few of the ways you can do it. Yeah. No, I thought it was a great topic. It's nice to remind myself about those opportunities as well. You know, you get so focused on a certain sort of trend and um, you hear all these things about the market and changing and you think, okay, well, that's not really, I can't do anything about it. And then you think, no, no, I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can help my clients do something about it. So I thought that's it was a great right. topic. That's right. Well, thank you again. Appreciate you doing it. Happy to be here. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.